This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, how is it possible for investigators to solve a crime that happened 50 years ago? Peter Valentin, a former detective and forensic scientist at the University of New Haven in Connecticut, helps us understand forensic science, how it works, and what it's like to work on these kinds of cases. An extinct coral reef in Australia is back, thanks to some music. Dominic McAfee, marine ecologist from the University of Adelaide in Australia, tells us why colonial fishing killed off reefs of oysters, and how his team used homemade underwater speakers to bring oysters back to the reefs, turning the reefs into living organisms again. And after all of that smart stuff, are you okay with Hot Pockets? Science. Science. Science is fun. Science has been grossly misrepresented in the last bunch of years. Um, You have to remember, fundamentally, this is way too Cole's notes, but science is nothing more than systematic study. People will say, who's a scientist? Well, uh, uh, that's a question about what is science. It's not a question about who's a scientist. So let's start with exactly that, systematic study. And where does that take us when we look at it from the perspective of study, paying attention, doing it properly, making sure that there's not bias and all these things creeping into it. And we're going to talk about this case, about this, uh, this, this person who was killed 50 years ago, Montreal. They've caught the killer. They believe that they've caught the killer because of science and forensics. And this is where we get to welcome in our guest. Uh, Peter Valentin is Chair of Forensic Science Department, Senior Lecturer at the University of New Haven. You uh, you teach this, you run the departments, you were, actually, were you a policeman first? An investigator? Yes, I was. So you, Yes, I was a detective with the state police uh, here in Connecticut. And then you went into the forensics and further deep in that, right? Yeah, I actually, I actually became the forensic scientist first and was more curious about the crime scene side of things. And at the time, there was really only one way to get there, and that was to become a police officer, become a state trooper, and that's what I did. So what kind of weird thing goes on in your head when you walk into a crime scene like that, and then you're like, you know what I would love to do? I would like to do this more often. <laughs> I think uh, I came from a family of police officers, and so I think I was always drawn to the, you know, what I'll say is the social significance of the work. And so it it takes you a little while to be able to walk past the the the, uh, the carnage and the you know the upsetting content. But when you you know you think about scientifically, what questions are there that need to be answered? Uh, you kind of persevere and you push through that. So, for instance, you go to a scene. How do you even know that a crime's been committed? Right. That's that's a decision that needs to be made after you gather information that's relevant to that question. You know, and you develop a hypothesis. Well, I do believe a crime has been committed. What information supports that? Or I think this was an accident. This was a natural death. And what information supports that? And, you know, you can imagine I know it's not part of our conversation today, but imagine if I made a mistake at that initial point. I thought something was a crime and it wasn't. And therefore, I would eventually arrest somebody who didn't commit a crime because it wasn't a crime to begin with. Or the converse, where I think something isn't a crime. It looks like an accident. It looks like a natural death. And it was a crime. But it was either staged to look that way or I just wasn't thinking critically enough to notice the details that should have led me to the conclusion that it was a crime. And in that situation, maybe akin to what we'll talk about today, um, somebody escapes justice. How thrilling is it, though? Like, human level. Like, seriously. Like, like Peter, when Peter goes home and he sits down and is making dinner and he's like, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, how thrilling is it when somebody tries to fool an investigator by staging something, faking something, distracting from it, whatever it is, um, and, and you catch that and you're like, ha ha, nay, nay, my friend can't outsmart me. I mean that, come on, like the human part of that must be off the charts. Feel good. It, it is. It is. It can sustain you for months of searching for that next moment and not finding it. Yeah, I bet. Uh, because it is such an epiphany and, and what it tells you, and I don't think I'm giving away any big secrets here, but if I detect that somebody has staged a scene, it tells me that that person is in that circle of people that I would already be looking at. And what they're generally trying to do is deflect attention away from themselves 
and push me in another in another direction. Yeah. And so all it does is kind of make me refocus my efforts on those people that are initially within that that sphere around the victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, this particular story, uh, that deflection part's amazing, right? That's that's fantastic perspective. That's that whole dance of hot, cold, up and down, right? If the answer's saying it's hot, it's possible that the answer is just not cold, right? Um, exactly. And, and this is the real scientific part of it is to really, you know, develop a hypothesis, right? Here's what I think happened. And then to use every bit of intellect that you have to try to tear down the very thing that you just arrived at is your conclusion. Right. We're really good at affirming what we believe, but how good are most people at kind of tearing down their own beliefs yeah. and finding the weaknesses? Because that's ultimately, if you don't do it, your case can go in the wrong direction. And if you don't do it well, the defense, if your case goes to trial, they'll do it for you. Yeah. And they can be very effective. Uh, humbling. Uh, at times, I imagine, um, to go, you know, and probably challenges your career. Like, is this right for me? Should I be here? Is this the thing for me? Because, you know, there will be times where you will actually tear yourself down and go, I mean, you know that ethically it's the right thing to do. It's the right compass. It's what you're supposed to do. But at the same time, it doesn't make you feel good at the end of the day. Not like it does when you figure it out. Oh, oh, definitely. And, you know, one of the most important lessons that I can give people that go into this line of work is to not bring your ego with you when you do this kind of work because if you come up with an idea and the people that are part of your team tear it apart you shouldn't take that personally as uh, some evidence of your uh, inability to do this you should thank those folks for saving you the eventual difficult situation because it the analogy i would use is this you know we've all uh, gotten lost in our lives you don't realize you're lost when you make the first wrong turn. You drive down the road, you drive down many roads, you make many more turns, and at some point it becomes abundantly clear to you that you have no idea where you are. But if you had those people who told you at that very first you know, wrong turn that you had no idea you were about to make, hey, go this way instead of that way, imagine how you would have saved yourself. And so you know, if I make that mistake at the scene, and I don't catch it, and nobody I'm working with catches it, I still have a lot of investigative work to do. I have a lot of analyses that I can perform forensically, and they're all going to give me information. But it's the wrong information. It's, you know, it's contradictory information. It's bad information. And that will be confusing to many people. So be open-minded, be humble, but yet confident in your abilities, and you arrive at much more reasonable and defensible conclusions about what you're doing. And that takes a lot of time to develop. Imagine it's kind of like wrestling an alligator. When you start wrestling an alligator, like you're probably off track. You might not be on the right, wrong track, but you're probably misaligned somewhere. But when you're not wrestling the alligator and you're just sort of on the flow, then you know, you're probably on the right track or at least close to the right track, right? That to me seems like it is. When you look at this case though, Peter, I mean, this is a story from 1975, 16-year-old girl, Sharon Pryor, she went missing. And all these years later, they've, they just released this on Tuesday, this guy, DNA, all that. Now, 25 years ago, roughly, uh, DNA has really started to have the massive impact on the legal system. Um, Someone had to have the stick-to-itiveness um, to stay there. Someone had to be in that flow somewhere on that path. And someone had to discover something. And did the technology change? Well, certainly, I'll address your last point first. The technology has changed dramatically. And uh, you know, the details aren't all quite clear just yet. But I think there's another piece to this in that there's a genetic linking of the DNA that existed in this case to identify a family member. And that's the important, you know, lead that gets you to the conclusion of of who the perpetrator was. Um, And so with cold cases, which is what this was prior to it being solved, the stick-to-itiveness is so important because, I mean, you know, in my experience in handling cold cases, you know, we get boxes that are filled with papers. You know, this is long before digital files existed. And so you are quite literally leafing through thousands of pages of reports, of interviews, of, you know, previous forensic testing that you know all led to nowhere, right? That that didn't result in, in enough information to arrest somebody. 
And so you're reading a story that doesn't have a conclusion. And the real challenge when you do that kind of work is to almost challenge all the decisions of the initial investigators. Because if you simply follow the story that you're being given, right, if you read the reports, well, you're going to wind up at the same conclusion they did. And so there's you have to have this sort of gentle pushback on, okay, I, I see that you interviewed this person and this is what they said. You believed it. But is it possible that that person wasn't being entirely forthcoming? Could it be that their recollection was imperfect about what it was they said they saw? You know, imagine if we if we cobble together enough of these slight distortions of, of the information that we're getting, you could see how it's that wrong turn mm -hmm. that leads the case in a direction that ultimately winds up with it going cold. And so over the course of what is you know, nearly half a century here, you can imagine that that box of information has been passed from investigator to investigator to investigator, and it almost starts anew. Now, alongside that process, somebody's also hopefully looking at the forensic changes, right? What new techniques, what new sensitivity do we have in our instrumentation that allows us to look at the evidence in a way we couldn't before? Um, and, and you're always mindful of, of, you know, let's take advantage of new capabilities forensically that, you know, 50 years ago, we, we had no concept of how DNA would be used today. And the only real biometric evidence were fingerprints. Yeah. And if that didn't exist, well, you, you had nothing. And you were left to cobble a, what would amount to a circumstantial case together, even if you did have uh, you know, the trace evidence that was the the forensic evidence of, of its day. So, yeah, you said something there that really sticks with me. I just want to acknowledge and bring to everyone's attention. I mean, you have uh, the truth and like the investigator 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, but then you also have the stories that were told and the perception of the truth. And quite often the perception of the truth is what gets passed down. So as an investigator, you need to stop on the hit stop on perception and have the distinction between truth as being truth, perception being perception, and not only that, clouded by perception of the truth, right, um, as being misguiding. In this, I mean, boy, oh boy, that's a topic we could take to all aspects of <laughs> politics and social media oh. today. Um, but that that being a very real, you know, sort of a real perspective. This case, though, is I would guess more complicated because the guy from Longay, Quebec, that they said um, that has done this because of the new DNA stuff, he died seven years later. Is it more difficult because there's not somebody that you can go to and like? you know, like on TV, swab them and, and, you know, put in your little machine and then poof, there it is. He's the bad guy. This guy's been dead for almost as long. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a very intriguing uh, application of DNA to solve a case that, you know, otherwise would have gone nowhere because there's simply, you know, here's how, here's how cold cases might get solved uh, in other ways. And this happened in Connecticut, which was really noteworthy, right? So the person who commits this crime essentially, uh, lives under the radar in the intervening years. But something happens, they get arrested for some unrelated crime, or something brings them to the attention of the police. And now their DNA goes into the database, or now their fingerprints go into a database. And this long ago forgotten evidence now gets connected to the new information that just got put into the database. And what makes this case even more intriguing is because that that wasn't an option because your perpetrator died. But the advances in DNA have gotten to the point where we can not only identify perpetrator to evidence, but we can actually identify perpetrator's family, right? Perpetrator's genetic um, connections to the evidence. And that opens up a whole new uh, sort of window, if you will, into making these connections where otherwise we would have been limited to simply the perpetrator. You're talking an awful lot about in the TV shows anyway, they talk an awful lot about, you know, family members, exes, all those things. To me, the words proximity, I mean, proximity really is the key in this, right? Cause it's either proximity of method or relationship really, unless well, it's exactly it's either that or it's so random that there's like, it's random, random. So, I mean, proximity must be the secret word to this. Absolutely. And, you know, what's really interesting about forensics, and it runs counter to the way it's portrayed on, on TV, is that 
what we do forensically lags behind what we do investigatively. And so for this case in particular, I can guarantee you that, you know, the initial thrust of the investigation was to figure out who was connected to the victim, right? So you said proximity. And so who's in proximity to the victim? Because it overwhelmingly, there is a relationship between your victim and your perpetrator. And your job is to find that connection. And then your job is to find the forensic evidence that substantiates the connection that you've uncovered investigatively. You couldn't do that here because the only real connection between your victim and your perpetrator um, seems to be proximity in terms of where he was relative to where she lived. That's not enough in, in a neighborhood where there's thousands of people yeah. and you have no way of filtering through those people. And so that creates a very significant challenge to us. And I think in some respects, that's what makes the the mystique of the serial killers so pervasive in our society is that these are folks, these are people who have no connection to their victims and they are therefore the most difficult perpetrators to apprehend because there's nothing that connects them. There's nothing that um, traditional investigative techniques will help you uncover. That's fascinating. Well, we're going to leave it there for now. Um, Peter Valentin is our guest. He's a chair of Forensic Science Department Senior Lecturer at University of New Haven. Now, um, I would love to get into that serial thing and all of that. Can we like just promise to book that? Because that would be amazing for me. Let's do that. Absolutely. Sweet. Sure. I'm, I'm going to get Ryan and you to work on the scheduling thing for that because I would love to continue this conversation. It's a fascinating story and so much more for us to learn. Thank you for sharing time. No, thank you for having me. This is The Shift Podcast. I told my parents I wanted to be a marine biologist. I was living on Vancouver Island at the time. And I didn't really want to be a marine biologist for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, my neighbor and my best friend, Marlene Jeffries, she wanted to be a marine biologist. And turns out she became one, actually, and um, lives that life all day, every day. I would never have been a good marine biologist because there's slimy things under the water. And when I go to Hawaii, I like to take surfing lessons until I see a big old eel swim by or something like that. And then I'm like, this is disgusting. Don't touch me. I'm never surfing again. So marine biology was never really in my bingo card. Turned out that radio was. Dominic McAfee joins us from Adelaide, Australia right now. Uh, turns out you're not afraid of slimy things. And it was on your bingo card for this whole marine biology thing. Hey, Dom. Oh, um, I'm not sure it was. I... I always wanted to do something with nature, uh, but I was a bit of a clueless kid. So I, I certainly didn't think that I was ever going to be a, a scientist mm -hmm. or a marine biologist. There was this urban myth that the world only hired one marine biologist a year growing up. Um, so <laughs> well, that's it was a strange one, hey? unattainable uh, feat. Uh, and that's rubbish. And as it turns out, you just need to be passionate and determined. That was my, that's they, how I got here. They hire two marine biologists a year. Turns yes. out you got one of the jobs. Um, okay, so uh, you're in Adelaide, and I want to get into this this project that you've done, which is fascinating look at repopulation and so much more. What do you love about uh, marine biology before we get to that, though? What is the part of, of it all, the ecosystems, particular animals, um, the little beasts that have ugly teeth that really could use braces? Because those ones, I don't like those ones. Um, you know, what is it for you that really keeps you there? Mm, we've got big beasts with big teeth here too. Yeah, I know. That, that, that really it's terrible. Uh, sends shivers down your spine when you get in the water. Um, but it is just a phenomenally fascinating world. Under the sea, it could be on another planet. Um, no need to read fantasy if you're a scuba diver because there is such bizarre, uh, expressions of life under the water and my work has been really sort of keying in to how uh what makes life tick even really microscopic brainless incredibly simple animals uh we're finding are far more dynamic in the way they interpret and interact with their world and that's what really excites me that evolution has has honed this environment 
uh, into something that is so acutely specialized to interpret whatever's available to them. And um, there's a lot of information floating about in the ocean for animals to engage with. I feel like we should acknowledge the brainless animals that wander around the surface of the earth too, and also um, comment on things on the internet. There's a few of those. Um, But under the water, when you talk about it being a different planet, I've, I've been told by scientists before here in conversation that if you ever wanted to see perfection, go underwater. Mm. Oh, wow. That's an interesting concept because I, yeah, yeah. But perfection is always being refined yeah. by evolution. And, and something that's interesting about marine environments is that animals have what we call a, a really small life history. So evolution, adaptation, change can happen really rapidly in really grandiose ways. It's an ever-changing system. Uh, and and you have your things that seemingly haven't changed for forever. Uh, take oysters, for example. They're as old as the rocks yeah. of the sea. They've been around longer than dinosaurs in their current form. But they're always evolving and changing and adapting, and and um, nothing sits still under the water. Why so is marvelous place to work? Why does it? Why does it seem to change so quickly underwater? When you look at other long lineage animals, I mean, you've got crocodiles, alligators, bats, um, you know, those kinds of things around for a very long time. They've changed and uh, not really grown. I guess the op- they've shrunk, <laughs> but they've changed a bunch over the course of time. But they really don't seem to change as fast as ecosystems adapt underwater. Is there a reason for that? It's that short life history. So things live for, they're not long-lived animals, and they have a a manner of breeding which is, there's some examples in, in the terrestrial realm, but a lot of organisms in the sea use the medium of water to send sperm and eggs willy-nilly, millions and millions, out um, into the environment. Uh, so that the, they play this, I guess, reproductive lottery mm. to a greater extent under the water than you do on land. And that just facilitates, allows for so many more different iterations, combinations uh, of, of outcomes. Right. Um, so you get this rapid, rapid responses and, and rapid evolution and incredibly plastic animals because the sea like land the, the the sea is incredibly diverse the sort of landscapes where an animal if it doesn't move a lot um it if it lands in the intertidal as opposed to a subtitled environment those are worlds apart right so it needs to have this animals need to have this really broad genetic toolkit to be able to deal with all sorts of different environments. And I think that means that you can get quite um, extreme responses within animals that are that are that have been around for a long time but are always adapting to the, the changing world. Is it safe enough to say as you're describe about fish and eggs that, you know, when dogs make dog babies, you know, it's one dog mating with a dog and because fish are sort of spraying their stuff all about, you never really know those little swimmers can land uh, maybe some magic of science one of those little fellas could, you know, connect with something he's not really supposed to or at least never have in the past, and then all of a sudden you have a brand new, holy moly, now you have an oyster with fins. I don't know. Make it up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, look, not too far from the truth. Um, <laughs> oh, scary. You, Here's where get, the scary, ugly things step in, right? You get all sorts of weird combinations. I think um, the marine realm's a bit of a problem for our definitions of of species and what is an organism because you do get more fluid representations of of of, of uh, gender and of what uh, we tend to think of, there's many many different definitions of what a species is but um, under the sea a lot of animals which we class as being quite sort of evolutionary separate can still produce some viable offspring mm-hmm. and uh, yeah Fascinating. Phenomenal. Ah, see, we don't ever think about it that way. Dominic McAfee is marine, marine ecologist from University of Adelaide in Australia. The work you've done here was some repopulation work. Let's start with 
what moved out, what broke before we start talking about how this new way of, I mean, you kind of created a ecological Ponzi scheme for these poor little buggers, but, um, but it worked. And so what went wrong? Let's start there. Uh, what went wrong? Wow. Maybe okay. I should say what changed because I, maybe, maybe, because you talked about, you know, evolution. Uh, maybe we should stick to that. And it's up to you. I just, I feel like maybe when I say no, what went no, wrong. I, is... I was just, I was just trying to think of a polite way to describe colonization. Oh. Uh, not that I need to be. Oh, hey, no, man. Hey, look, we, uh, we talk about colonization and we talk about it here on the shift and we're like, colonization is terrible. And then we're like, but we're going to take over the moon. Like we don't learn. We don't. So you can talk about it however you need to. <laughs> Uh, essentially, uh, so we've had one of the longest lived human cultures in in Australia. Um, indigenous Australians arrived here something like 50,000 years ago and have been sustainably managing marine and terrestrial resources over a long period of time, including oysteries, which is what I work on, mm-hmm. and uh, among many other things. Um, but within about six or seven or eight decades of, of Europeans arriving in Australia, uh, they turned what was this phenomenal network of, of reef ecosystems akin to, everybody knows, the Great Barrier Reef of Australia, 2,000 kilometres of beautiful coral reef uh, visible from space. We had a approximately 7,000 kilometre oyster reef in the temperate waters, the, the just just south of those subtropical waters where the corals end, the oysters took over. And they filled the bays and estuaries all around te- uh, the cold waters of, of Australia, the cooler waters, but also much of the temperate world, all through North America, Asia, um, parts of Africa and, uh, and any other continent I haven't yet mentioned. Mm. So they were everywhere. They've, uh, oysters, oyster reefs were this massive ecosystem and really important for for providing foundations, much like coral reefs do, or other biogenic uh, other habitats formed by seagrass or kelp. Uh, but we love to eat oysters, and they were scraped from the seafloor following European colonization by a really efficient dredge fishery, and uh, were within a century of European colonization, extinct of the Australian mainland, the flat oyster. Wow. Uh, every single reef was scraped from the seabed indiscriminately, and that includes scraping the, so that's the live oysters to eat, but also the dead oysters as well. When you burn oyster shell, you can actually manufacture cement. Um, so a lot of the early colonial Buildings were, were built on the back of oysters with uh, oyster cement. Wow, um, did not know that. So it was, it was an indiscriminate uh, wild west beneath the waves uh, that removed all these reefs, and that's what went wrong. Uh, we've then had several generations that have never lived seeing what these large oyster reefs mean, uh, large oyster reefs would have looked like. So we're experiencing something like intergenerational amnesia. So just for the sake of touching on it now, when we eat oysters today, is there responsible ethical oyster farming in today's world versus this whole scrape up the bottom? Has it gotten at least better? Yeah, yeah, okay, absolutely. Right. Um, in many parts of the world, the wild fishery ended following the collapse of those uh, native reefs. Yeah. So we've got something like 85% of oyster reefs worldwide have been erased. Uh, in Australia, it's about 99%. Wow. And um, following that loss of reefs, still loved oysters, we still want to eat them. There was a transition in, in Australia and many other places to more sustainable aquaculture, huh. uh, which led to the introduction of a Japanese oyster, the Pacific oyster, which is what pretty much everybody eats around the world. It's our favorite oyster. and. Uh, and and people essentially forgot about the the, the native oysters. So was it with a little bit of both of those, or or what? Uh, you know, what's next in the storyline? What did you need to accomplish? Were you, were you? I, oh God, I have no idea what I'm talking about when I say this. I'm so far out of my lane. Like the slimy things underwater make me avoid things all underwater. Do you plant them? Like do you like do you make little rub yeah, them together? Where did, where did we go? Do well, you the first, make little the oyster part. babies by rubbing them together? I don't know. 
Oh, again, not far off. Oh, so boy. <laughs> but first and foremost was to communicate, hey, we've lost this thing. Uh, we've lost this ecosystem. Uh, nobody knew that, or nobody remembers that we had these reefs. And it was actually the rediscovery of um, fisheries maps from the late 1800s, mm-hmm. which showed that we had oyster reefs, thousands of kilometres squared individual oyster reefs that were, that were raised from the seafloor. And it was circulating that knowledge, so people took notice, politicians most importantly. Um, you know, a decade ago when I started, what year were we in? A decade ago, exactly, nice. when I was doing my, my honours degree, um, I was looking for something to study and, and I stumbled across oysters because I heard about this, this massive loss. But there was absolutely no discussion around bringing them back, restoring them. Uh, but the discovery of these maps and the recognition that we've lost something like 7,000 kilometres was this incredible catalyst. And from a first small reef restoration in, in 2015, um, across the nation we're up to 60 reef restorations. Uh, trying to bring back this habitat. And uh, they're all going to behave a little bit differently. Um, there's a lot of context dependency in how we do how we do it. But first and foremost, you want to put something on the seafloor that oysters, if they're out there, can settle on. Mm-hmm. If they're not out there, then we need to go and rub them together in the hatchery and, and breed little oyster babies and then plant them out there. But the best way to restore a reef is to use natural babies out in the system. And we're fortunate that we still have, even though all the reefs are gone, there's still individual oysters here and there. And one mummy or daddy, because it's a very fluid gender with oysters, mm-hmm. uh, um, can produce about three million uh, viable offspring wow. per spawn. So they're pretty fecund. They're ready to roll. Yeah, eh? uh, they're actual. They're actually um, called sequi- This particular oyster, the flat oyster, Austria angasi, is a sequential hermaphrodite. It can switch between being male and female almost on a daily basis. Really? So if you look at its its gonads, you can see sperm and eggs more or less hanging out together. Wow, that's fascinating. So how did you bring them all back together? You used music to do it. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, so we're trying to just, I guess, advertise our reefs to whatever was out there and wondering how we can coax um, the available larvae out in the system, uh, little baby oysters are called larvae, and before they settle down and are the familiar sedentary self, they don't move anywhere, they have a, sweet, a free swimming stage where they're floating around in the water column looking for a place to live. And that was assumed for a long, long time to be a passive process. They would just move with the tides and with the waves. But we've actually discovered that it's far more dynamic. And we started exposing them to different things in the lab. We would get little larvae and we would um, provide uh, different smells that might be attractive. And uh, they have a rudimentary eye, so they can actually see as well. But found was the most attractive cue. And we played different marine sounds. Those are the natural sounds of the sea. We were, we went out into nature and recorded the sounds of the sedimentary sea floors, the sound of sea grass beds, the sound of kelp forests, the sound of healthy rocky reefs. And the healthier the habitat, and healthy rocky reefs in particular, were the most attractive sounds. So in the lab, we actually showed that when we played sound, oysters would swim towards uh, towards our speakers, um, not particularly fast, mm-hmm. but but they've got time on their hands. Not a lot of time, but um, but uh, yeah, it, it worked. It worked really well. So have you taken uh, so that we, and taken it out into the reefs to turn it around into real life? Yeah, so uh, we work on an absolute shoestring in conservation. Um, you'd think this important national restoration work would be well-funded, but but we do everything on an extreme budget. So we actually built our own speakers because underwater speakers are expensive. Right. And we went down to the local hardware store and got um, uh, like plumber's pipe and uh, some car batteries from a car shop and a, a $20 little speaker unit off eBay. We built our own speakers and 
all the designs are open access, so anyone can do it. Um, and we put the speakers down the reef and played sound for uh, for a few months. But within a matter of three or four weeks, we were getting about uh, up to 17,000 more baby oysters settling on our reefs per meter squared uh, than in the absence of using that sound. That's so fascinating. It's about five times more oysters attracted to our reefs when we use these. So we have about a minute left here, uh, Dr. McCaffey. So what is the state today? Is it, uh, are you back or is it just growing or where are you? We have returned an extinct ecosystem to the southern coastline of Australia. Wow. Within two and a half years, we've gone from having no reefs to the largest um, flat oyster population in uh, in mainland Australia. It's wow. unbelievable. Can I get this on Spotify and listen to it myself? Or <laughs> no? Listen uh, to the music? You, I could probably keep your attention for about 10 seconds. Really? Um, eh? But for the oysters, it's music to the non-existent ears. It's like Marvin Gaye for them, hey? They're just like showing up. And... <laughs> or, or, or Barry White. Yeah. Making babies. This is fascinating. Congratulations on the success of your work and, and being able to do that. I guess that that's essentially, that's the that's the golden cup for a, an ecologist, marine biologist, to be able to literally create life, but to do it in a way that you've inspired it to happen naturally. That's like the, that's the full-on champion gold medal, isn't it? <laughs> it it's it's one. Of, it's a phenomenal conservation success story, and hopefully, it's just the beginning. That's fascinating. We've got a lot of work to do. Will you keep us up to date as this goes on? Because I, I love yeah, this. Happy to. You almost make me want to get in the water with the slimy things now to see it. Oh, do it. Oh. Do it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Take more coaxing than that one. Uh, Don McAfee is here. Thank you so much for spending time with us, sir. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 877-399-9898. That is our phone number for you to let us know if you are okay with these little topics that we talk about here. Um, yeah, so call it in. Text it in. All those things. Are you okay with? Pockets. Pockets? Yes. Who doesn't love I, pocket? I know. I, I like having massive pockets, you know, uh, you know, the one because your phones are getting bigger, so you can just fit it down there and just slides all the way down. Love that. And mm. uh, my battle jacket, my heavy metal jacket, it has a record breaking amount of pockets on it. It has at least one, two, three, four, five, six. It has at least eight pockets on the front, and they're all hidden within pockets. There's literally pockets within pockets within pockets. It's my favorite jacket. You know what's unfair about pockets? That women don't get them at all. Ladies' anything. clothing. Talia, right? Dresses, you get fancied up. You put on the fancy dress, right? And no pockets. Oh, that's so true, but I think we're getting better. There's like a movement happening, because guess Ooh. what? My hmm. prom dress had pockets. Really? Wow. See, so both smart. Big nice. good pockets on both sides, and every time I, everyone's like, "Oh, I love your dress," I'd be like, "Guess what? Yeah. It has pockets." That could be yoga pants, actually, because yoga pants didn't have pockets for the longest time, and then they started making them big enough to fit the cell phone sort of in the side, mm-hmm. right? And that's really where you started to see it change. If you can put a phone in a pocket in tight pants, right? You can put a pocket anywhere. Hundred percent. Pocket innovation, so good. It's not what we're here for. Are you okay with hot pockets? Oh, uh, they're fine, but I will take a pizza pop over a hot pocket every time. Isn't a hot pocket one of those things like those little hotties that you shake and put in your gloves to keep your hands warm? I don't know what those are called. They may be called hot pockets. They they're definitely not called hot pockets because hot pockets are made by Nestle, which is you know like big company. So I don't think they would just let that name be used by anybody. But now I'm really trying to figure out what the glove things are called. Um, hot pocket gloves, gloves. Warmers. Hand warmers with hand warmers, glove warmer, pocket warm heat packets. Grabber big the- pack. Hot gloves, fleece gloves, hot glove, hot glove treatment. 
Um, kids hot pocket mitt. Yes, that's what it's a hot pocket. Hot pocket glove baseball. See? More than just a pizza pocket. Okay. Okay. Wow. The more you know. Knowledge. What would you do if someone ate your last hot pocket? Whatever you would do, this guy in Louisville did the opposite. And is charged with shooting his roommate during an argument over food. Clifton Williams faces an assault charge. According to court records, Williams was mad because the man had eaten the last hot pocket. It happened Saturday night at their home on Hathaway Avenue. The victim was found a few blocks away on Beecher Street. In court today, a judge set Williams bond at $7,500. That's from CBS News. Now, that doesn't surprise me. I'll share this story in a second. Finish this one. One important detail was left out there, the fact that the roommate was shot in the butt. Fun fact, comedian Jim Gaffigan is well known for his material poking fun at Hot Pockets. Uh, this material is so popular among fans that he's regularly offered Hot Pockets when he's on tour. So Jim Gaffigan is very good, by the way. He's You're looking for a stand-up? Go search Jim Gaffigan, G-A-F-F, and um, on your Netflix and stuff or online. He's very, very good. Now, this also does not surprise me because there's a video I saw. My buddy, Brett Forte, the comedian, he's one of the funniest cats around. He can be a little little sharp sometimes, uh, but all in good comedy. He's down in the States. He posted a video on his Instagram, and it uh, there was a guy in the street causing a ruckus, you know, um, blocking traffic, yelling things, strange, kind of delusional, mm-hmm. and the police are walking mm-hmm. over to him. They're putting the gloves on as they're walking up to this man. And, um, and there's a video he shot just yesterday or the day before down in the States and they're putting the gloves on and he's like, don't trust the police. They stole my debit card and all this stuff. And he's, you know, makes not a lot of sense. And there's an American guy and you have to imagine, take no offense, Americans who are listening, but there is a stereotype that fits There's an American dude kind of in his, um, uh, his button up summer vacation shirt, right? Like a good Maui gym shirt or something like that. And uh, he's got his cargo shorts on, no joke. I believe it was socks and sandals. Smoking a cigarette. And as the, as they walk by, the police walk by to go get this guy out of the street. All he yells out is, shoot him! Oh, my God. <laughs> Zero to 100, man. Jeez. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, to, to some people, he was blocking traffic. They were put out into the, the guy smoking a cigarette. He just felt like that was the easiest way to deal with it. So, yep. hey, perspective, right? It's important. Uh, anyway, Brett it. Forte, recommend him. He's been on the shift before. Um, I will caution that um, he's very, very funny, um, but he does talk about all kinds of things. And um, you have to be a fan of comedy to appreciate what he does because it's good stuff. He's probably Canadian from Calgary, actually. Um, he used to work in radio, too. Are you okay with walkout songs? Uh, yeah, I think it's probably one of the best things in sports. Just the fact that every player has like a song. And I know like the Calgary Flames, uh, individual players have their own goal songs. Yeah, goal songs more in hockey, great- yep. Yeah, yeah, but they're starting. you're starting to see the walkout song bleed into other sports because it's something baseball does. To kind yeah. of get the fans hyped as like their favorite player hits the pitch, and I I think that's a fun way to get the the, the fan base kind of jazzed up. Mm-hmm. And, well, it puts uh, a little I, music uh, into baseball. Baseball can be boring yes. at times, right? Like exactly. it really can. Yeah, be. It, it can. That's so why it, it helps break it up a bit. They sped up the game too and put some like shot clocks, basically like basketball mm-hmm. shot clocks, into baseball to hurry the game up. So, baseball players um, have great walkout songs. You know, they are fun. They're playful. They can be funny. But why don't we have cool walkout songs, like, in general? Everybody should have one, right? Yeah. Like, you walk into a meeting, you know, and Ryan plays the sad songs from the Smiths and everyone starts to cry. It would Something not like be. That, right? it, no, I would do, like, You've Got Another Thing Coming by Judas Priest. I, was, I would go that route. Don't worry. You know what I learned this week? What did you? What? It'd probably be a Taylor Swift song based on how well you danced and sang along to those songs on New Music Monday earlier this week. What Taylor Swift song would I pick? Talia, what Taylor Swift song best depicts Ryan? Style. There it is. That's the, yeah, but that's pretty low key. But you know what? It's got a good synth beat. I could do it. I'd figure I it out. I feel that's up your alley. 
I'm pretty sure you sang every word to that song and the dances you, from the music videos. That was the videos. one you were like, you gotta play it. Yeah, yeah. like I, I was I can play shocked. It. I love that song. We did. If you didn't catch that, we did New Music Monday about Taylor Swift for Talia, just because Talia is a big Swifty fan. It turns out Talia is not the biggest Swifty fan in this room right now. That's not. That's just. I think that's disrespectful to Talia. Because uh, she's clearly more of a of a tea, of a Swifty than Emily? I am. She doesn't do all the hand moves and the dances and sing along to like her hairbrush on the microphone on the Zoom call like you just did. Okay, fine, sure. Yep, I'm the biggest T Swift fan. Here goes. I'm gonna sell my bank account. I'm gonna buy those contacts that somebody wore to the show and put it up yes. on, on Depop. Ten thousand dollars for the contacts. Yep, that's me. You should do that. Uh, anyway, um, that's yeah. the philosophy of a mayor in the UK who figured that um, he needed a walkout song. He ditched the choir for heavy metal. Local councillor Tim Coles decided to have some decided to have some fun with the centuries-old system, and he was recently elected Lord Mayor of the South Coast City. Coles marched to the altar to be named mayor to the sound of Metallica's "Eye of the Beholder," specifically this part. Now. Um, it gets a little better, too, by the way. I mean, nothing says mayor like this song. I mean, police chief, maybe, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is the song I would need my mayor uh, to get. Okay, so uh, he's also a diehard Trekkie, and he, uh, when he did his thing, he spoke in Killingon. Killingon? Killingon. Klingon. What if that's how you spell Klingon? Klingon? Is it Klingon? Yeah. What if it? Like what if it's not how you spell Klingon? That's a typo. It's definitely not. Okay, he's a diehard Trekkie, and he spoke in Klingon. All oh, hail no. Lord Mayor Coles, speaking in Klingon. Miss Josie um, is loving this, and um, and so Metallica and Klingon. Congratulations, that's who you elected. <laughs> Good luck with your he's town. Still- Hey, he still wore the fancy robes and the silly hat. Like he was in full like 18th century garb when he went walking to Metallica and people in the back, like they were loving it. I think. Yeah. Did they love the Klingon though? I couldn't find video of the Klingon. I, there were a couple of people that tweeted about it. Like, you know, they showed pictures, but nobody recorded it. So it happened, but I, I I wish I knew. I wish I knew what it sounded like. Are you okay with Billy Ol. Billy Ol. Who doesn't love Billy Ol? Oh, do you mean Billy Joel? Yeah, my buddy Billy Carlos Ol. used to call him Billy Ol. Billy Ol. Oh, because the J. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, I've never really. I know like three Billy Joel songs. I know a parody version of uh, Piano Man that is my favorite. I, you know, called Nano Pan. Uh, you know, I've got, you know, I just, I don't really care. You know, he's got a couple songs that I, I that I recognize, and that's that that that's my interaction with Billy Joel. Really? Yeah, just I've never a couple. really tried. You think The Smiths is one of the most successful albums uh, of 1987, go. and you don't know who Billy Joel is? I know who Billy Joel is. Come on. No? Yeah, like, look, I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad at all, but... Right? I don't think I actually knew that this was a Billy Joel song. What's the matter with the clothes? Really? Yeah. Oh, no? you might want to save this one. You might want to save this one. Nope. This is the song I know, but I don't like because it's too much. Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway. Um, oh, I see what you got going on here. Here's a sample yeah. of one of his most favorite songs. Did we play that one? No famous songs? Yeah. There it is. Perk, see? Right in. Oh, I see where you're going. Yeah. We did not start this fire, my friends. Although some nights this dumpster... That fire is lit by us. Yeah. In this case, a man did start a fire. A landlord is charged with arson after allegedly starting his Duluth apartment ablaze. This while blasting Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. All of this according to court documents. Investigators found 37-year-old Travis Carlson with fresh burns the day after the fire. 
Downstairs tenant and neighbors told police that Carlson had smashed out his windows before telling the tenant that the home was on fire. Investigators found evidence of gas cans and a dismantled electrical panel in the basement. No word yet on a motive here. Uh, dude, fresh burns. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, that's so good. Love it. Um, so I was scrolling through Billy Joel songs on um, on Spotify, mm-hmm. directly credited to Billy Joel as an artist. Okay. Seven hundred seventy-one. Seven hundred and seventy-one song. Okay, so, that's now some of them are like repeats, greatest wrote? hits. Uh, those are songs he sang in. Now this, oh there's God. Christmas songs in there, and then there's, um, you know, there's like the the remasters and the greatest hits. So they do get repeated, but seven hundred seventy-one. So, just saying. Uh, anyway, uh, this guy who uh, had fresh burns. Uh, from CBS News, that story. The guy really wanted to start a fire. A neighbor also told officers that they saw the man under his truck with gas cans going in and out of the house. An investigation revealed that he drilled a hole in his truck's gas tank uh, with lids to gas cans laying around the truck. If convicted, Carlson could face up to 20 years in prison. Also should take a shop class because drilling a hole in a gas tank is crazy dangerous and needs to learn how to siphon. And the power of gravity, because that would have saved him a lot of trouble, too. Mm-hmm. Mm. Go to science class, fella. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show, and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.